0: Hello, K2H. Today, I wanna talk about art, but you know, it's not just about art. I think it's more importantly is um, the people behind it and what shapes these uh, works and what shapes the processes and how do we unpack the process. And I think there's a lot to unpack in just that little concept. I have a brilliant artist with me who uh, has a lot to say about this. We have an artist and art director, Melissa Wang. Uh, Melissa, welcome to our show. I'm going to uh, just give a little background of Melissa before we kind of kick started. So Melissa received her bachelor's in literature and writing from UC San Diego and her master's in English from UC Davis. She researched and taught writing and science fiction literature as a PhD candidate at UC Davis before segueing into tech. While designing her major global company, she noticed that tech as a neoliberal, as soon as the academic and you're talking about neoliberalism <laughs> industry feels environmental racism at an unprecedented scale. So in late 2019, she began full-time art making as a means of pursuing social and ecological liberation and since then has exhibited at Kala Art Institute in Berkeley, Torrance Art Museum in LA, California, the de Young Museum in San Francisco, uh, solo exhibition at Root Division, which is also in San Fran, and her work can be found in private and public collections, including Brown University, Center of Study of Race and Ethnicity in Providence, and Facebook in Menlo Park, California. Wow, pretty hefty um, bio there, Melissa, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. <laughs> I'm and that's sorry. just the tip
0: of the iceberg of what you are. So, it's,
1: yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, it was just so funny. We were talking about um, earlier, I had mentioned that I was a teacher's pet growing yeah. up and hearing you read my bio, I'm like, oh my God, this is what I think. Are you an out.
0: overachiever? This is what I'm going to ask you. Are you, <laughs> is this the Asian part of you? Is this stereotyping you? Or is that something that you
1: claim with pride? Oh my God. Um, I'll be... Yeah, no, I mean, I grew up in a, I grew up in a city where there weren't a lot of Asians. And so I really got um, sort of put into the model minority. I was typecast as a model minority, even before I knew what it was, I would say. Um, And it didn't help that I was a middle child.
0: I'm a middle child. Okay, let's talk about that. I was the black sheep. I was blamed for everything, even when I wasn't there.
1: (laughs) I mean, like, that's totally not my experience. I felt like the middle child, my parents said, said that there's some Chinese saying about how middle ch- children, because they're the ones that are like left to their own devices, that they end up becoming the most independent ones or something. Most independent ah. and so-called responsible ones.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you don't think you, are? Or you um,
1: are? No, no, I definitely was because my parents worked full time. They, they own a retail store. I grew up in San Pedro which is by the water in uh LA and so my parents had a store in Call and it's like a one of those seafront villages with huh. the chachki shops and stuff like that yeah. so um you know they they worked uh 7 days a week and I basically would go there after school and run around <laughs> and do nothing Wait so um, your
0: where are your parents from Uh
1: they're from Taiwan well uh my uh, my, my parents were born in, or uh, my dad was born in China and, but my, immigrated to Taiwan when he was one. And my mom was born in Taiwan, but she's, you know, Shanghainese, they, they okay. consider themselves mainlanders. So.
0: Right. Right. So you grew up speaking Chinese. They spoke to you in Mandarin or. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, Mandarin was my first language and I actually went to school and I didn't, I understood English, but I didn't know how to speak um really I didn't really know how to speak so (laughs) they (laughs) almost held me back and then my friends were like you have to forget Mandarin so that was kind of unfortunate because yeah I I completely forgot the language after a certain point but I was I was I was fluent and they said I didn't speak for until I was maybe four and then I started speaking complete sentences I was just biding my time and they said i i would have adult conversations wow (laughs) so you were
0: absorbing your brain was just taking in all that language and trying to figure out how to kind of compartmentalize it or something that's really interesting
1: yeah yeah i think like um i i have a pet turtle and i would say turtles are my favorite animals and i'm definitely that kind of person where it takes me a long time to get comfortable but once i'm in water i'm just i move really fast if you see turtles in water which are you, you, I mean, that's you a great analogy. I used
0: to have a pet turtle. In fact, when I was in Hong Kong, I had a pet turtle and it disappeared. I, we had it in our bathtub and it ran away and we couldn't figure out where, and we thought the dog ate it and it was just like devastating to me. So I never had a chance to see it swim really. Maybe yeah. it went swimming. I don't know, but that's such a great analogy that it's slow, but when it gets into water, it moves fast. I love that. Um, but the the language thing I wanted to go back to, because that's really interesting. You know, um, a lot of parents of a dual, Um, language children they often there's this whole debate of whether to have one parent speak one or you know give them that whole their cultural language and then let them have that as a base and then they can always learn English later but they're saying that it confuses the development right and maybe that's Kind of speaks to why you didn't speak for a couple of years. I don't know. But it's interesting, like the pressures that uh, parents from different ethnic backgrounds want to instill in children while trying to get the the family to adapt. And, you know, that that very problematic word of assimilation. And Mm -hmm. by doing that, sacrificing culture and language for the sake of fitting in. You mm-hmm. want to speak a little bit to that before I move on to your art? I know we can go on forever on different things. I was telling you, I warned you,
1: but go ahead. I have a, I have two do- thoughts about this. So I actually wrote my, um my PhD application was on uh, a text called Native Speaker. And it's all about linguistics. And I also wrote about Jessica Hagedorn's, um oh my God, I forgot the name of the text. It's like dog eaters, I think, right? Um, where she talks about how um, gossip is like a subversive language um, because it's it's infiltrated by, um, you know, like, l- like uh, local, it could be infiltrated by slangs and, um, you know, like local words that mean something to us. And so language is really interesting to me because for me, it's a tool of oppression, mm-hmm. right? It can be violent in itself. Um, I... In order for me to learn English, I associated with this erasure of Mandarin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was something that (laughs) I think even at eight, I remember my father saying, you know, you need to learn English and you should just forget all the old ways, right? And then me me being like, oh, that's like such a colonized mindset. (laughs) (laughs) Because even at eight, I was like, way too, I I was like, way, way too. um, Go
0: outside the box. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, I felt like an old person. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds like you're an old soul.
1: Yeah, cuz I was re I mean I was already reading a lot. Um I I I just I I read so many books. I mean, I still read a lot. I read maybe like uh when I was in grad school I was reading like a 1000 pages a week just, you know, because Whoa. we have to, right? Yeah. And then yeah and then now like now that I'm not working full time, um, you know, when I was in tech I I like I remember not being able to read, and now I I read like maybe ten books a month if I get a chance to, right? Um, or I don't finish them all, but like I have ten at a time, so that's not an accomplishment. But this is how much I love reading, and so language is really, I think it's interesting because I have a really you know tough relationship with it. I I feel sad that I had to give up Mandarin. Now that I'm you know thirty six, right? And it's hard for me to recall Mandarin, even though when I speak it, it's like going back into water sometimes. Like when I'm talking to certain people, uh, especially my older relatives, it's just there's a natural affinity to to use the language and use the vocabulary. It just comes back to me. And speaking the language is a connection to my homeland. Yes. Um, My mother really expressed the, the need to she was the one that enrolled us in Chinese school when we were in like middle school, right after we had lost lost our connection Hmm. to culture, Um, and she would actually, you know, write, make up homework assignments, you know, the way that mothers always do, like, above and beyond,
0: but
1: (laughs) I remember she would, like, after work, she would um, create these worksheets, and then she would, um, you know, order textbooks from, um, I don't know, some Chinese publisher, we would learn the language, and that was a connection to our ancestry, that was a connection to other cultural practices. Like, which is like, um, when we went to Chinese school, like I I think of when I think of language, I think of this whole larger context, long story short.
0: (laughs) But at the time, did you resist this? You know, did you think of this as such a burden and why we had to have this extra, you know, why is she imposing all this, you know, Chinese culture on me when I already have it or, you know, at that time? Was that like a normal response?
1: No, because my sister was already doing that. (laughs) Oh, okay. So you had that through and you were just kind of, I felt like you appreciated it. it. Yeah. I had to be the good child because my, um, my sister was so rebellious. It was really funny. She like, you know how um, uh, the Chinese language is uh, it's uh, these are logograms. And then I just remember one time we were learning how to write chicken and my sister drew a chicken (laughs) (laughs) and then I felt that you know, at as, as like a 10 year old, I was like, oh, I have to be the good one because my sister's the bad one. It's <laughs> <That's> interesting. <laughs> but it all balances out and that's
0: great. I mean, I just love it that well, so you the two sisters, the two of you.
1: Okay, because yeah. you're in the middle child. Yeah. And my sister's only, um, oh my gosh, so funny. My sister's only less than me, only a year older than me. And okay. my brother's about two years younger. So we're really okay. close in age. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, wow. So well.
1: Yeah, my parents had a hard time because we were nuts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But that's good. That's so human. It's so comforting to hear that, you know, I mean, because on one hand, you're saying, okay, well, I fit into that model minority stereotype. And you know what? This 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 word is so, you know, Mm. because it's such a hot word right now, you see it in every freaking um, article. Everyone's referring it to it, to redefining it and 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 acknowledging it. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, like we used to use this, like it, it, it was just part of our genetic makeup. And so it's really interesting how things have morphed. And I wanted to use that to move into what we wanted to really kind of tackle is the idea and how we're kind of addressing these recent anti-Asian hate crimes, what's going on with the racial narratives now and where uh, Asians sit in this dialogue. And why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll try to unpack a little bit of that. And you can share a little bit of your experience from this anti-Asian harassment, that You did post on your website too. So everybody, we're talking to Melissa Wang, artist and activist here. I'm back here talking to Melissa Wang, who is in San Francisco right now, uh, an artist who's actually in an exhibition right now. What I'd love to hear, uh, Melissa, first, we originally talked about, you know, how language, uh, you know, we're talking about your, your speaking Chinese at home and, and embracing that and, you know, just grappling with things that uh, we do as, as often as descendants of immigrants and how we make sense of our culture, and our position in this very racialized society as it is increasingly voiced as and understood as. Uh, And I wanted to address that before the break, I mentioned the idea of Asian American, uh, you know, anti-Asian hate crimes, basically. But how does this work into perhaps your work? And maybe you talk a little bit about your exhibition, maybe go from there.
1: Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, I'm currently in an exhibition called Excuse Me, Can I See Your ID two? Um, that's in that's being held at Vessel Gallery in Oakland. And they're actually it's virtual right now, but there's actually gonna be a physical one, which I think is so relevant because usually when we hear the term excuse me, can I see your ID, we're thinking of uh racial policing because what often happens is that um, you know, the police will come to will like Um, you know, stop someone in the street and then ask, you know, where's your ID? Do you live here? What are you doing here? Like all the different kinds of forms of policing that have actually nothing to do with whether this person deserves to be here at all. And this happens all the time because this happens in academia. When I was in academia, you would have, you know, um, as a woman of color, if you wanted to get tenure, you would have to show you had like great um, publications, you you, you had extensive teaching experiences, um, you had, you know, organized or shown at conferences, you had great, serve, great feedback, all things which, which I'm like, does that really have to do with tenure or not, you know, and I just recently had, um, uh, I've been interviewing to see if I want to go back in tech and because I have an extensive um, background and within the industry that I just don't want to give up. And someone asked me this technical question that i'm like i've never been really asked this before except at startups where they associate uh, product knowledge with a design experience and when you've worked at companies for example like i have where products can change drastically in in not just months but weeks (laughs) that it doesn't really make any sense for a designer to hold on to extensive product knowledge but that's just another form of racial policing where where you're expected to have you know all this experience and know how to do these things and have the so-called emotional intelligence factors like strategic uh, vision and strategic knowledge and um like other skills and on top of that have this one extra thing and these are all just the different hoops that um you know my, my minorities have to jump through and we had earlier talked about like modern minority as a terminology that doesn't exist in our own culture right, right. modern minority is a term that was like created by white folks right yeah like yeah as a racial wedge and so the you know for a long time i was trying to explain why this is problematic problematic and i just realized you know why am i choosing to use again language as a form of oppression right why am i using a term that does not service that was actually created to oppress us right
0: um
1: and so these are my so this is you know again long story short no this is sort of my experience right now, like anti-Asian discrimination in the US, which is that, you know, we're really working with tools that were not designed by us for us. And so they're actually working against us when we try to explain them away. Um, And one thing we can- Sorry, I just
0: wanted to question, you know, now that we talk about this terminology and and because this whole uh, conversation around anti-Asian hate and just the stereotyping and the misrepresentation of, of Asians here, do you think that the Asian community is also grappling with how to address it? And are there some constructive ways or problematic ways that you see are happening? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I can only share my own experience, right? Which is that, you know, growing up in a in a city where there weren't a lot of Asian people, I I always felt you know, that double consciousness that, um, I mean, Dubois like talks about, right? Like someone already, like, uh, like I, like somebody already deciding for us who we are, being looked at through that lens. And, and I would say that, you know, this is something that happened on the playground, like we never seem to evolve past, like, Mm -hmm. some of these things, like, um that we could already see operating on the playground when when i was in school i remember um i switched from public courses to magnet courses and that was like a predominantly white um sort of i don't know program Mm -hmm. Um, and immediately i sensed a shift in awareness in which my black and brown friends stopped really hanging out or playing with me and the white kids would make fun of me in this very like subtle but really horrific way which is like you know try to say curse words in chinese you know like that kind of subtle meanness that's like uh the the, i mean it's microaggression really and i remember white teachers would exploit me basically you know asking me to you know paint something for them for this like event but never really you know never giving me anything for it. And then if I was bullied, they wouldn't do anything about it. And so mod, the model minority myth, and the scarcity mindset, they really sort of emerged together right on the playground, and we never sort of evolved past that, because what resources are given to, you know, BIPOC communities to understand this kind of this kind of oppression that happens to us. Um, So I would say that, you know, and I mean, that's my experience, right? Growing up in the city, also uh coming at uh also growing up around the Rodney King riots and seeing how the Korean and the Black communities were really sort of pitted against each other. And the funny thing is, you know, as a Chinese kid, I remember growing up being really, really harassed like physically by Korean girls. <laughs> you really? know, the first yeah, like the I was bullied, I was bullied a lot because I was really shy and quiet and I didn't really talk and I wore like super nerdy glasses. Um, But some of my worst bullies were actually other Asian women. And so, you know, to me, this is, um, you know, you can't we can't really fix other people's problems unless we get our own house in order. So I don't really understand. I mean, and this might be the part about me that drove me towards like the artistic profession, which is that I'm much more interested in, you know, creating and designing a world that um, could be meaningful, um, could be visionary. And that might make me seem a little naive because I some, at, at the heart of it too, I don't really understand where this violence comes from. Other than that, I get the sense that it comes from deep seated sort of um, concerns and maybe insecurities about our own culture, about why we would feel driven to you know harass other people that look like us or look down or condescend on our own culture. Because I was always taught to be very proud of being Chinese actually,
0: Yeah. even when,
1: or go ahead.
0: Gosh, no, I mean, you just put so much on the table right there, um, mm-hmm. you know, cause on one hand we have this issue as Asians dealing with, you know, I don't know if you watched recently, John Oliver put out this really, uh, I thought quite um, evocative, uh, I guess, presentation, if you will, on Asian Americans. And mm-hmm. he said something about how we wear our race on our face. Right, and I'm thinking, you know, as Asians, and that terminology again of being perpetual foreigners is that you know the distinction between Asian Americans and Asians is not seen uh, from a white perspective. And even putting away the white perspective within Asians, you said you were bullied by a Korean girl, and just the kind of little hierarchies within our own so-called color, and you know this how colorism plays into uh, both you know specific kind of ethnic groups, as well as the larger kind of racial narrative here is so complicated and and it's really frustrating. And I don't know, I I feel like we're just digging ourselves deeper into a hole. Like, okay, we've decided that we've recognized the problems with the racial structure here. Okay, now what? Uh, How are we gonna get, you know, I feel like all this, fantastic advocacy and activism on behalf of the asian americans is is very visible for the first time ever but at the same time we're addressing our own people it feels like to me so Mm -hmm. i don't know how we're crossing things and i really wanted to cross into getting into your art because how does it (laughs) translate like how does um art form Mm -hmm. find a way to transform and transfer and translate certain things that we can't do with just talking
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I um, I can definitely segue into that, because the whole reason why I decided to go into painting was because I felt language was no longer sufficient, right? My, I had my whole life, I had this relationship to language where I was just trying to master it, you know, and as Audrey Lord says, you know, you can master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, but I think it was Nala Hawkinson that sort of talks about, and she's a science fiction writer, she talks about how she utilizes the genre to create a new house, using master's tools to create a new house. And I think, I thought that was so interesting because, you know, when I went to academia, I wanted to be a professor in literature again, and that was like my colonized mindset, thinking that, you know, this is the field that I wanted to go into because I want to master the, the language and the literature because I thought it would give me a sense of like, I don't know success right if I could like be an expert at this then maybe I could prove that I had accomplished a sense of like belonging and becoming within this space that had never really acknowledged me. And then I realized at a certain point, you know, actually I had mentioned earlier the issues with academia. Yes, <laughs> you know in the US it's really bad. <laughs> I mean Go like ahead. speak oh, it really out.
0: Hard. I'm I'm happy to hear that. But, you know,
1: but I mean, yeah, you know, it's at a point where I'm like, oh, my God, or is every person of color suing their institution for denying them tenure, you know, and my I'm just remember quitting the program halfway in. I was I had, you know, done the how far um, did you go? Because you were candidate status, right? Yeah. I mean, I had done the prelims. I was uh, I was prequels. But I was like, yeah, I have to like I'm losing my mind. I'm getting like anxiety attacks because I'm broke. I'm not even broke. I'm in debt like doing this thing that I was used to get paid for, right? Because as a PhD candidate, I don't know about you, but the UC Davis, uh, with UC Davis, I was getting like $1,700 or something less than, than that, like a paycheck for that a month to teach, yeah. you know, um, like two courses a week. But you know, you know, like that's, that's like way more work. It's like a 20 to 40 hour work week because you end up grading 30 papers every three That's months.
0: Me. I'm there. I'm a I'm a grad assistant for the Women's Studies Department. And I shouldn't be, you know, complaining about that because I totally appreciate it and I love the Women's Studies Department, but the amount of work you put into um preparing a course and and doing all the other things. Cause every person, every student is an individual and you have to take it like that. I mean, you know, so yeah. I, I hear you about that. But Can we take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about continuing, you know, your resistance to things that you feel are pushing you in the wrong way. I think that's a really important point to make and how art helps you to achieve that. Continuing this really interesting conversation here with artist Melissa Wang and talking about academia and the intersections of how, you know, how scholarly work does influence us, but at the same time, push us in a way that questions where we're boxed into within the academic institution, which is something that I think you were speaking to Melissa and what drove you out of it. So maybe you wanna just kind of uh, continue your thoughts there before we move on to your art. We'll really get into your art, I promise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm like enjoying this conversation immensely. So thank you again so much. Uh, yeah, I would say that, you know, after a certain point, I, I wasn't just content to study it anymore. I wanted to, to, to I wanted to write, I mean, I want to create, I wanted to to do something and build this world that I wanted to see, because so much of the field that I have chosen, um, and this is not to say about any, about other practices, but just that literature itself is a very styled uh, field. And so um, that's when I segued into tech I had been reading science fiction, and I thought it'd be really interesting <laughs> to see what it would be like. Um, so I was working at Facebook and Google, which are, you know, l- talking about neoliberalism, labor of love, right? Like all the extra work that we do for something that we love. The, the ins- these institute, these are all institutions at a certain point. So where do we go to find, where do we go to align our passions with our purposes? And I truly think that art has been able, has been a way to do this, right? Because Liberation doesn't need to be, you know, when I think of activism, I actually don't consider myself an activist, activist right, because I see my friends who are, who are doing the incredibly difficult work of going to, you know, city events, protesting, holding leaders accountable, um, and actually pushing for policy change in a way that's very, you know, truly like democratic, truly for the people, um, grassroots with no recognition in in this in this kind of like um, you know in the kind of like loud and financial way that we see. I mean, I'm thinking like it's Pride Month and how like there's always this huge Pride parade in in, in France
0: specifically, right? San I remember when I. Yeah. I just remember, sorry, you know, I missed that because when I was there one summer when my kids were younger, I would take them to the pride parade. And I remember some really stuffy old white woman would look at me and say, why would you take your kids to something like this? Like I was polluting their thoughts. And it struck me (laughs) as the different views that people have and why we have this so extreme kind of segregated ways of thinking about what's right and not right, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm like that woman, like, what are you gatekeeping, right? You know, (laughs) but having said that, sorry, I just had
0: this image of my son at the time standing there and there's this guy next to us, this naked um, guy with like um, kind of a, like some flower chains around his penis (laughs) to cover him up. (laughs) I's <laughs> I like Look, mom <laughs> it's like I love San Fran
1: yeah yeah no down my street there's always like a, a someone walking around with like a sock I see them every once in a while because you know you, you just have to like put a sock on and it's okay why because
0: it's illegal or you want to keep it warm
1: <laughs> I maybe both <laughs> <laughs> I about that, but that's so gr- that's a great point yeah um but yeah I mean like um yeah, I see a lot of butts here and that's kind of what's great about sf it keeps things yeah, a but you
0: talk about liberation you know we're talking about we're getting into the idea of art as liberation and mm-hmm. when you're exposed to um bodies in a form that's normalized mm-hmm. does that shift a way a person thinks about what it means to be liberated and what it means for us to be conscious of what is you know how do we approach our bodies and our bodies of work if you will you know mm-hmm.
1: That's a really great question. Um, I think about liberation as porous, liberation as being open to the evolution that is happening all around us um, that is actually the normalized and natural part of life. Um, Many of these, like, these sort of, I think about that white woman gatekeeping some kind of idea of holding on to some kind of idea that to me is such a man-made and, to be completely frank, naive understanding of the world. Um, You know, what came before us was not like this, right? And we are all sort of immigrants to this land. And even as an Asian American, my identity is completely constructed because in other parts of the world, I am not Asian American, you know? right? Like, I don't even know who I am. You know, I I was talking to my mom about this, about how when she first came to the States, she said people would look at her like she was an alien. And I told her, I mean, sometimes I look at them and then I see an alien too. And the sense of like belonging is really shifting at a time when, you know, having worked in tech, the possibilities for that. I mean, we, we live in a, working in academia and in tech, Gave me the resources to understand that we are moving at a pace now where we cannot continue to hold on to these things. So, what is the practice that is going to open up the world for us? And that to me is liberation um, through art making because for too long, um, our stories have not been told. Yeah. And so for artists out there and creatives out there, the world is waiting for us. It's not that it's ready; it's waiting. <laughs> it needs us, right, to tell our stories. Um, we just, you know, in academia, I studied whiteness, and the and whiteness came about as, you know, a concept that's that's tied to citizenship, right? I don't know if you you know this, but um, you know, like the Irish, they they started to call themselves white because they wanted to be distinguished from um, Black Americans they were they were considered black they were like the black europeans right, and so like right. white, whiteness is just completely fabricated and i mean like and that was a way to gain um uh, citizenship rights for the irish and so you know how did something so small and you know it seems completely irrelevant to our times become such a big part of our identity i don't know and so yeah. we really need to stop using these these terms and stories and myths and tools that don't serve us. Um, and I would say that the thing too, about being a woman of color, because I do identify as a woman of color I, in academia, when I was trying to study, when I was studying Asian-Americans literature, because that's just what happens when you're the only Chinese, you know, you're the only one. <laughs> I think in my entire department that over a hundred students, there were grad students. There was only one other like wow. half biracial um, wow. Asian American woman. And so of course you end up studying it. And what I realized is our liberation is tied to all other like groups, right? African Asian American literature would not have existed without African American literature. It would not be, have its sort of like depth of knowledge without um, Chicano studies, right. um, Absolutely, like, queer studies, right? And so that, but liberation happens with ourselves, with our practice, with our communities. Um, I'm, I'm like a quiet, someone said I was a quiet activist because I work mm. on my conversations with my peers and my family first. Well, you're and quiet then,
0: on the audio version of that word quiet, but you're actually <laughs> very loud in your activism in your work. So I want you to speak a little bit about that, you know, how you transfer that energy into your work and and even creating space, like you're curating this other thing to celebrate um, different Asian and Asian American women's work. So how, yeah, talk a little bit about your work and how that's translated into that.
1: I, when I first started making art again, because I have, I've been drawing since I was five and I was on track, I think, to develop a professional career because I was winning awards and scholarships mm. up through middle grade. And then I moved um, to a pretty prestigious school. But that was, you know, it was uh, focused on math and science uh, because those are seen as more reputable careers. And then Did you never... have pressure from your parents too
0: along that line mm-hmm.
1: or no. In the quiet way, right, where you really don't want to beholden your parents to support you. You see them struggling every day Uh and you want to, you know, have a so-called better life for them. Financially speaking, um, you know, my parents were never going to be able to pay for uh, art school. Right. So, and I didn't know how to apply for scholarships. And I think that's just, you know, quite sad that, um, you know, there's so many financial obstacles and barriers mm-hmm. to uh, folks who want to pursue a creative passion. Right. The only kids that I saw that went to art school were, to be completely frank, rich kids. So. <laughs>
0: So this is talking about art and the privilege of, or, or the white space of art. And you're talking earlier about how we need to kind of, there's so much interesting work with Asians and Asian Americans. I've just started to discover through this, um, this organization, A W A A. right? Um, but how do you say that we need to get our work seen? How do we get it seen? How do we push beyond kind of the boundaries that protect us, but isolate us within our own communities?
1: I I honestly feel that we we need to not just think, not just, and this is my designer mindset, but not just design for our own lives, but design holistically, which is that as as I started to work within the art world, I started to see that most of the organizations and galleries and spaces that host the art and share our stories are white-led. And that's a huge problem because to a certain extent, white folks will never experience, understand our experiences of racism. So who is there you know, holding them accountable for speaking to those? Um, you know, when folks don't experience um, issues of racism, what happens is that their privilege is having, they have the privilege of not seeing, right? And so they don't recognize that there are these obstacles that are in the way, including you know, financial access to art schools. Or including like language barriers, right? So many of uh, art, so many of like art exhibitions or art events are held because you have to write a statement. And I've talked to so many artists who aren't, again, like Asian American Asians being lumped into one group. So many of them don't don't speak English, don't even write it well, and so they have to go through the extra like hoops again of getting that edited. And so what would that mean to have like organizations that already understand that that provide resources to support that or do away with those, right? That extra, like, excuse me, can I see your ID kind of thing? Um, I just think that we need to completely reinvent systems of recognition and reward. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. And you're part of that change, right? So in our limited time left, can you, I know there's so much more I want to talk to you about Melissa, but can you at least um, share this new curation that you're talking about in celebrating other Asian women in their art?
1: Oh, yes, I would love to. Um, so I'm partnering with uh, the organization you just mentioned, AWA, um, partnering with our managing director, Diana Lee, on um, on curating this show. I don't know if it's going to happen because it's the first time I'm doing it and the exhibitions can be really arduous. Um, but all of these artists I've been speaking to, they just happen to be women because these are... These are the artists that are women identifying because um, I just noticed I naturally gravitated towards them and their work. We're thinking about femininity in really interesting ways. It's not just femininity. It used, I, I start out with like I saw a pattern in the way in which we were using materials to question the to question bodily pot- politics, mm. identity politics. There's um, I'm thinking Ray Linda Guzman who works with uh, she was using like Pineapple leather, and she was using um, these materials that questioned uh, issues of colorism mm. um, that are um, that are used in her homeland of uh, the Philippines. And so that was really interesting to me. And I was working, and so and then there's um, also there's uh, also Casey Jung, who's a another artist that I met in San Francisco. Um, she's working on questioning uh, capitalism um, and using these like portraits of. Uh, artists including herself, who left, uh, for example, she left a PhD program to pursue art making. So she's like questioning capitalist modes of identity uh, production. And to me, I'm trying to think about femininity without explicitly saying like these are these are works that are addressing that too. but to me, there's there's a deep longing and deep desire embedded in many of these works to question, how we, how these identities came to be and how this identity gets sort of like imbricated into the materials that we use, the techniques that we use. Um, yeah, it's, a, again, sorry, this is like a project that's very early on in the making. Um, it's, I'm hoping that's gonna happen sometime next year, but uh, yeah, it's it's really like a huge- uh, but
0: It is about the process, isn't
1: project. it? I mean, yeah, I don't it really know like-
0: Um, You you mentioned that in your kind of show prospectus where I just wanted to uh, quote you that you were working on transnational kinship resilience and love, um, how they're made invisible and so you're trying to, uh, you know, decontextualize this and how cultures is embodied in materials and performed and created in techniques, processes and crafts. And I, I think that, you know, cause I'm studying performance studies right now. And then there's this kind of like the lens of the performativity of process is really, really interesting. And even in this one, whatever, how long it takes you to curate and complete and have this exhibition, it is this process itself that is so worthy of kind of unpacking and what i hope to do is maybe as you go along and you get closer to it maybe as you can come back and we can talk about what you've discovered in this process that has been part of shaping and how these identities of these individual artists speak to you and how this project as a whole kind of speaks to individuals you know this kind of relationship between the individual and how we are you know artists as activism i think is a is a really important place to go in this time and place in our lives and and you you embody that I, I feel like there's so much um, like I said natural activism from your voice and how you connect and how you resist and how you kind of Curate based on things that are problematic and at the same time, something that brings us together. Um, So it's really beautiful and and I'm so sorry we don't have enough time to continue, but I promise to do this again. And um, you share your continue to share your work and how can people look for your work, which we didn't really get a chance to see. Is there a website that
1: you could share with our audience? Yeah, you guys can uh, check out my works at uh, melissawangart.com and I'm sometimes on Instagram. (laughs) 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 I think, yeah, having worked for social media, I'm I'm taking a break right now. But uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram and I'll be, I have some upcoming shows and exhibitions that I'm excited about. So I hope to see you guys either there physically or visit me online and uh, drop a comment. I'm always happy to hear from anybody who's interested in art.
0: Yeah, and, and art, whatever that means, you know, art is liberation. <laughs> you know, I just really love that you you have that term. And I and I wanted to leave that with people's thoughts. Art is liberation. Lots to think about. Thank you so much, Melissa Wang.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you again, Crystal. It was so nice.